irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. Hoover Dam, once known as Boulder Dam, is a concrete arch-gravity dam in the Black Canyon of the Colorado River on the borders between the U.S. states of Arizona and Nevada. It was constructed between 1931 and 1936 during the Great Depression and was dedicated on September 30, 1935 by President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Its construction was the result of a massive effort involving thousands of workers and cost over 100 lives. The dam was controversial because it was named after President Herbert Hoover. Since about 1900, the Black Canyon and nearby Boulder Canyon had been investigated for their potential to support a dam that would control floods, provide irrigation water, and produce hydroelectric power. In 1928, Congress authorized the project. The bidding bid to build the dam was submitted by a consortium called Six Companies Incorporated, which began construction on the dam in the early 1931. Such a large concrete structure had never been built before, and some of the techniques were unproven. The torrid summer weather and lack of facilities near the site also presented difficulties. Nevertheless, six companies turned over the dam to the federal government on March 1, 1936, more than two years ahead of schedule. 
Hoover Dam impounds Lake Mead, the largest reservoir in the United States by volume. The dam is located near Boulder City, Nevada, a municipality originally constructed for workers on the construction project about 30 miles southeast of Las Vegas, Nevada. The dam's generators provide power for public and private utilities in Nevada, Arizona, and California. Hoover Dam is a major tourist attraction. Nearly a million people tour the dam each year. Heavily traveled US-93 ran along the dam's crest until October 2010, when the Hoover Dam bypass opened. Early in the 20th century, as the United States developed the Southwest, the Colorado River was seen as a potential source of irrigation water. An initial attempt at diverting the river for irrigation purposes occurred in the late 1890s when land speculator William Batty built the Alamo Canal just north of the Mexican border. The canal dipped into Mexico before running to a desolate area Beatty named the Imperial Valley. Though water from the Imperial Canal allowed for the widespread settlement of the valley, the canal proved expensive to maintain. After a catastrophic breach that caused the Colorado River to fill the Salton Sea, the South Pacific Railroad spent $3 million in 1906 through 1907 to stabilize the waterway, an amount it hoped vainly would be reimbursed by the federal government. Even after the waterway was stabilized, it proved unsatisfactory because of constant disputes with landowners on the Mexican side of the border. As the technology of electric power transmission improved, the lower Colorado was considered for its hydroelectric power potential. In 1902, the Edison Electric Company of Los Angeles surveyed the river in the hope of building a 40-foot rock dam which would generate 10,000 horsepower or 7,500 kilowatts. However, at the time, the limit of transmissions was on electric power was 80 miles or 130 kilometers, and there were few customers, mostly mines, within that limit. Edison allowed land options it held on the river to lapse, including an option for what became the site of Hoover Dam. In the following years, the Bureau of Reclamation, known as the Reclamation Service at the time, also considered the lower Colorado as the site of the dam. Service Chief Arthur Powell Davis 
proposed using dynamite to collapse the walls of Boulder Canyon, 20 miles north of the eventual dam site into the river. The river would carry off the smaller pieces of debris and a dam would be built incorporating the remaining rubble. In 1922, after considering it for several years, the Reclamation Service finally rejected the proposal, citing doubts about the unproven technique and questions as to whether it would, in fact, save money. In 1922, the Reclamation Service presented a report calling for the development of a dam on the Colorado for flood control and electric power generation. The report was principally authored by Davis, and it was called the Fall-Davis Report after Interior Secretary Albert Fall. The Fall-Davis Report cited use of the Colorado River as a federal concern because the river's basin covered several states and the river eventually entered Mexico. Though the Fall-Davis Report called for a dam at or near Boulder Canyon, the Reclamation Service found that the canyon was unsuitable. One potential site at Boulder Canyon was bisected by a geologic fault Two others were so narrow, there was no space for construction camp at the bottom of the canyon or for a spillway. The service investigated Black Canyon and found it ideal. A railway could be laid from the railhead in Las Vegas to the top of the dam site. Despite the site change, the dam project was referred to as the Boulder Canyon Project. With little guidance on water allocation from the Supreme Court, proponents of the dam feared endless litigation. A Colorado attorney proposed that the seven states which fell within the river's basin, which were California, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming, form an interstate compact with the approval of Congress. Such compacts were authorized by Article I of the United States Constitution, but have never been concluded among more than two states. In 1922, representatives of seven states met with then-Secretary of Commerce Hubert Hoover. Initial talks produced no results, but when the Supreme Court handed down the Wyoming versus Colorado decision, undermining the claims of the upstream states they became anxious to reach an agreement with the lower stream states. The resulting Colorado River Compact was signed on November 24, 1922. Legislation to authorize the dam was introduced repeatedly by Representative Phil Swing, a Republican of California, and Senator Hiram Johnson, also a Republican of California. But representatives from other parts of the country considered the project as hugely expensive and one that would mostly benefit California. 
1927 Mississippi flood made Midwestern and Southern congressmen and senators more sympathetic toward the dam project. On March 12, 1928, the failure of the St. Francis Dam, constructed by the city of Los Angeles, caused a disastrous flood that killed up to 600 people. As that dam was a curved gravity type, similar to the design of the arch gravity as was proposed for the Black Canyon Dam, opponents claimed that the Black Canyon Dam's safety could not be guaranteed. Congress authorized a board of engineers to review plans for the proposed dam. The Colorado River Board found the project feasible, but warned that it should the dam fail, every downstream Colorado River community would be destroyed and that the river might change course and empty into the Salton Sea. The board cautioned, to avoid such possibilities, the proposed dam should be constructed on conservative, if not ultra-conservative, lines. On December 21, 1928, President Coolidge signed a bill authorizing the dam. The Boulder Canyon Project Act was appropriated $165 million for the Hoover Dam, along with the downstream Imperial Dam and All-American Canal, a replacement for Batty's Canal entirely on the U.S. side of the border. It also permitted the compact to go into effect when at least six of the seven states approved it. This occurred on March 6, 1929, with Utah's ratification. Arizona did not approve it until the year 1944. Even before Congress approved it, the Boulder Canyon Project, the Bureau of Reclamation, was considering what kind of dam should be used. Officials eventually decided on a massive concrete arch-gravity dam, the design of which was overseen by the Bureau's chief design engineer, John L. Savage. The monolithic dam would be thick at the bottom and thin near the top, and it would present a convex face towards the water above the dam. The curving arch of the dam would transmit the water's force into the abutments, in this case the rock walls of the canyon. The wedge-shaped dam would be 660 feet high, which is 200 meters, and that was the thickness at the bottom, and it would narrow to 40 feet or 14 meters at the top, so it was 660 feet at the bottom and only 40 feet wide at the top, leaving room for a highway connecting Nevada and Arizona. On January 10, 1931, the Bureau made the bid documents available to interested parties at $5 a copy. The government was to provide the materials but the contractor was to prepare the site and build the dam. The dam was described in minute detail, covering 100 pages of texts 
and 76 drawings. A $2 million bid bond was to accompany each bid. The winner would have to post a $5 million performance bond. The contractor had seven years to build the dam, or penalties would ensue. The Wattis brothers, heads of the Utah Construction Company, were interested in bidding on the project, but lacked the money for the performance bond. They lacked sufficient resources, even in combination with their longtime partners, Morrison Knudsen, which employed the nation's leading dam builder, Frank Crow. They formed a joint venture to bid for the project with the Pacific Bridge Company of Portland, Oregon, the Henry J. Kaiser and W.A. Bechtel Company of San Francisco, the McDonald and Kahn Limited of Los Angeles, and the J.F. Shea Company of Portland, Oregon. The joint venture was called Six Companies Incorporated. Bechtel and Kaiser were considered one company for the purpose of the name. The name was descriptive and was an inside joke among the San Franciscoans in the bid. Six Companies was a Chinese benevolent association in the city. There were three valid bids, and six companies bid of 48890955 was the lowest, within 24000 of the confidential government estimate of what the dam would cost to build, and $5 million less than the next lowest bid. The city of Las Vegas had lobbied hard to be the headquarters for the construction, closing its many speakeasies when the decision-maker, Secretary of Interior Ray Wilbur, came to town. Instead, Wilbur announced in early 1930 that a model city was to be built in the desert near the dam site. This town became known as Boulder City, Nevada. Construction of a rail line joining Las Vegas and the dam site began in September 1930. Soon after the dam was authorized, increasing numbers of unemployed converged on southern Nevada. Las Vegas, then a small city, some 5,000 people, saw between 10,000 and 20,000 unemployed people descend upon it. A government camp was established for surveyors and other personnel near the dam site. This soon became surrounded by squatters camp, known as McVeaserville, the camp was home to men hoping for work on the project together with their families. Another camp on the flats along the Colorado River was officially called Williamsville, but was known to its inhabitants as Ragtown. Once the construction began, six companies hired large numbers of workers with more than 3,000 on the payroll by 1932. With employment peaking at 5,251 employees in July 1934. As part of the contract, six companies incorporated 
was to build Boulder City to house the workers. The original timetable called for Boulder City to be built before the dam project began. But President Hoover, President Hoover ordered work on the dam to begin on March 1931, rather than October. The company built bunkhouses attached to the canyon wall to house 480 single men at what became known as River Camp. Workers with families were left to provide their own accommodations until Boulder City could be completed, and many lived in Ragtown. The site of Hoover Dam endures extremely hot weather, and summer of 1931 was especially torrid, with the daytime high averaging 119.9 degrees Fahrenheit, or 48.8 degrees centigrade. Sixteen workers and other Riverbank residents died of heat prostation between June 25 and July 26. The Industrial Workers of the World, known as IWW or Wobblies, though much reduced from their heyday as militant labor organizers in the early years of the century, hoped to unionize the six company workers by capitalizing on their discontent. They sent 11 organizers, several of whom were arrested by Las Vegas police. On August 7, 1931, the company cut wages for all tunnel workers. Although the workers sent away the organizers, not wanting to be associated with the Wobblies, they formed a committee to represent them with the company. The committee drew up a list of demands that evening and presented them to Crow the following morning. He was noncommittal. The workers hoped that Crow the general superintendent of the job would be sympathetic. Instead, he gave a scathing interview to a newspaper describing the workers as malcontents. On the morning of the 9th, Crow met with the committee and told them that management refused their demands, was stopping all work, and was laying off the entire workforce, except for a few office workers and carpenters. The workers were given until 5 p.m. to vacate the premises. Concerned that a violent confrontation was intimate, most workers took their paychecks and left for Las Vegas to await developments. Two days later, the remainder were talked into leaving by law enforcement. On August 13th, the company began hiring workers again, and two days later the strike was called off. While the workers received none of their demands, the company guaranteed there would be no further reduction in wages. Living conditions began to improve as the first residents moved into Boulder City in late 1931. A second labor action took place in July 1935 as construction of the dam wound down. When six companies' manager altered working times to force workers to take lunch on their own time, workers responded with a strike. Emboldened by Crown's reversal of the lunch decree, workers raised their demands to include a $1 per day raise. The company agreed to ask the federal government to supplement the pay, 
but no money was forthcoming from Washington. Alas, the strike ended. Before the dam could be built, the Colorado River needed to be diverted away from the construction site. To accomplish this, four diversion tunnels were driven through the canyon walls, two on the Nevada side and two on the Arizona side. These tunnels were 56 in feet in diameter, or 17 meters. Their combined length was, neither, was nearly 16,000 feet, or more than three miles long. The contract required these tunnels to be completed by October 1st, 1933, with a $3,000 per day fine to be assessed for any delay. To meet the deadline, six companies had to complete work by early 1933, since only in late fall and winter was the water level in the river low enough to safely divert it. Tunneling began at the lower portals of Nevada Tunnel in May 1931. Shortly afterward, work began on two similar tunnels on the Arizona Canyon Wall. In March 1932, work began on lining the tunnels with concrete. First the base, or invert, was poured. Gantry cranes running on trails through the entire length of each tunnel were used to place the concrete. The sidewalls were poured next. Movable sections of steel forms were used for the sidewalls. Finally, using pneumatic guns, the overheads were filled in. The concrete lining is three feet or one meter thick, reducing the finished tunnel diameter to 50 feet or 15 meters. The river was diverted into two Arizona tunnels on November 13, 1932. The Nevada tunnels were kept in reserve for high water. This was done by exploding a temporary coffer dam, protecting Arizona tunnels, while at the same time dumping rubble into the river until its natural course was blocked. Following the completion of the dam, the entrances to the two outer diversion tunnels were sealed at the opening and halfway through the tunnels with large concrete plugs. The downstream halves of the tunnels following the inner plugs were now the main bodies of the spillway tunnels. To protect the construction site from the Colorado River and to facilitate the river's diversion, two coffer dams were constructed. Work on the upper coffer dam began in September 1932, even though the river had not yet been diverted. The coffer dams were designed to protect against the possibility of the river flooding at a site which 2,000 men might be at work, and their specifications were covered in the bid document in nearly as much detail as the dam itself. The upper coffer dam was to be 96 feet or 29 meters high, and 750 feet or 230 meters thick at its base. That, believe it or not, is thicker than the dam itself. It contained 650,000 cubic yards of material. Once the coffer dams were in place and the construction site was drained, 
Excavation for the dam foundation began. For the dam to rest on solid rock, it was necessary to remove accumulated erosion soils and other loose materials in the riverbed until sound bedrock was reached. Work on the foundation excavation was completed on June 1933. During this excavation, approximately 1.5 million cubic yards of material was removed. Since the dam was an arch gravity type, the sidewalls of the canyon would bear the force of the impound lake. Therefore, the sidewalls were excavated too to reach virgin rock, as weathered rock might provide pathways for water seepage. The men who removed this rock were called high scalers. While suspended from the top of the canyon with ropes, high scalers climbed down the canyon walls and removed the loose rock with jackhammers and dynamite. Falling objects were the most common cause of death on the dam. The high scalers' work thus helped ensure worker safety. One high scaler was able to save life in a more direct manner. When a government inspector lost his grip on a safety line and began tumbling down a slope towards almost certain death, the high scaler was able to intercept him and pull him into the air. The construction site had, even then, become a magnet for tourists. The high scalers were the prime attraction and showed off for the watchers. The high scalers received considerable media attention, with one worker dubbed the human pendulum. For swinging co-workers, and at other times, cases of dynamite across the canyon. To protect themselves against falling objects, some high scalers took cloth hats and dipped them in tar, allowing them to harden. When workers wearing such hair gear were struck hard enough to inflict broken jaws, but sustained no skull damage, six companies, incorporated, ordered thousands of what initially were called hard-boiled hats. Later, they changed the name to hard hats, and strongly encouraged their use. The cleared underlying rock foundation of the dam site. Was reinforced with grout, called a grout curtain. Holes were driven into the walls and base of the canyon, as deep as 150 feet or 46 meters, into the rock, and any cavities encountered were to be filled with grout. This was done to stabilize the rock and to prevent water from seeping past the dam through the canyon rock, and to limit uplift. Which is upward pressure from water seeping under the dam. The workers were under severe time constraints due to the beginning of the concrete pour, and when they encountered hot springs or cavities too large to readily fill, they moved on without resolving the problem. A total of 58 of the 393 holes were incompletely filled. After the dam was completed and the lake began to fill, large numbers of significant leaks into the dam caused the Bureau of Reclamation to look into the situation. 
it found that the work had been incompletely done and was based on less than full understanding of the canyon's geology. New holes were drilled from inspection galleries inside the dam into the surrounding bedrock. It took nine years, from 1938 to 1947, under relative secrecy, to complete the supplemental grout curtain. The first concrete was poured into the dam on June 6, 1933, 18 months ahead of schedule. Since concrete heats and contracts as it cures, the potential for uneven cooling and contraction of the concrete posed a serious problem. Bureau of Reclamation Engineers calculated that if the dam was built in a single continuous pour, the concrete would take 125 years to cool and the resulting stresses would cause the dam to crack and crumble. Instead, the ground where the dam was to rise was marked with rectangles, and concrete blocks and columns were poured, some as large as 50 feet square and 5 feet high. Each 5-foot form contained a series of 1-inch steel pipes through which first cool river water, then ice-cold water from a refrigeration plant was run. Once an individual block had cured and had stopped contracting, the pipes were filled with grout. Grout was also used to fill the hairline spaces between columns, which were grooved to increase the strength of the joints. The concrete was delivered in huge steel buckets, seven feet high and almost seven feet in diameter. Crow was awarded two patents for the design. These buckets were which weighed 20, 18 tons when full, were filled at two massive concrete plants on the Nevada side and were delivered to the site in a special rail cars. The buckets were then suspended from aerial cableways, which were used to deliver the bucket to a specific column. As the required grade of aggregate in the concrete differed depending on the placement of the dam from pea-sized gravel to nine-inch sized stones, it was vital that the bucket be maneuvered to the proper column. Once at the bottom of the bucket opened up, disgorging eight cubic yards of concrete, a team of men worked it throughout the form although there are many myths that men were caught in the poor and are entombed in the dam to this day, each bucket only deepened the concrete in a form by an inch, and six company engineers would have not permitted a flaw caused by the presence in the human bo- of a human body inside the concrete. A total of 3.25 million cubic yards or 2.5 m- meters of concrete was used in the dam before concrete pouring ceased on May 29, 1935. An additional 1 million cubic yards were used in the power plant and other works. More than 582 miles or 1,000 kilometers of cooling pipes were placed within the concrete. 
Overall, there is enough concrete in the dam to pave a two-lane highway from San Francisco to New York. Concrete cores were removed from the dam for testing in 1995. They showed that Hoover's Dam concrete has continued to slowly gain strength, and the dam is composed of a durable concrete having a compressive strength exceeding the range typically found in normal mass concrete. Hoover Dam concrete is not subject to alkali silica reactions as the Hoover Dam builders happen to use non-reactive aggregate unlike that at downstream Parker Dam where the alkali silica reaction has called caused measurable deterioration. With most work finished on the dam itself, the powerhouse remained uncompleted. A formal dedication ceremony was arranged for September 30, 1935 to coincide with the Western tour being made by President Franklin D. Roosevelt. The morning of the dedication, it was moved forward three hours from 2 p.m. Pacific time to 11 a.m. This was done because Secretary of the Interior, Harold L. Ickes, had reserved a radio slot for the president at 2 p.m., but officials did not realize until the day of the ceremony that the slot was for 2 p.m. Eastern time. Despite the change in the ceremony time, and temperatures of 102 Fahrenheit or 39 degrees Celsius. 10,000 people were present for the president's speech in which he avoided mentioning the name of former President Hoover, who was not invited to the ceremony. To mark the occasion, a three-cent stamp was issued by the United States Post Office Department bearing the name Boulder Dam, the official name of the dam between 1933 and 1947. After the ceremony, Roosevelt made the first visit by any American president to Las Vegas. Most work had been completed by the de dedication and six companies no negotiated with the government through late 1935 and early 1936 to settle all claims and arranged for the formal transfer of the dam to the federal government. The parties came to an agreement on March 1, 1936. Secretary X formally accepted the dam on behalf of the government. Six companies was not required to complete work on one item, a concrete plug for one of the bypass tunnels, as the tunnel had to be used to take in irrigation water until the powerhouse went into operation. There were 112 deaths associated with the construction of the dam. The very first was J.G. Tierney, a surveyor who drowned on December 20th, 1922, while looking for an ideal spot for the dam. His son, Patrick W. Tierney, was the last man to die working on the dam. 13 years to the day later. Unbelievable. 96 of the 
deaths occurred during the construction of the site. Of the 112 facilities, 91 were six companies' employees. Three were Bureau of Reclamation employees, and one was a visitor to the site, with the remainder employees of various contractors not part of six companies. Not including the official fatalities, numbers of deaths that were recorded as pneumonia. Workers allege that this diagnosis was a cover from death from carbon monoxide poisoning brought on by the use of gasoline-fueled vehicles in the diversion tunnels and a classification used by six companies to avoid paying compensation claims. The site's diversion tunnels frequently reached 140 degrees Fahrenheit or 60 degrees Celsius, enveloped in thick plumes of vehicle exhaust gas. A total of 42 workers were recorded as having died from pneumonia None were listed as having died from carbon monoxide poisoning. No deaths of non-workers from pneumonia were recorded in Boulder City during the construction period. The initial plans for the facade of the dam, the power plant, and the outlet tunnels was ornaments clashed with modern look of an arch dam. The Bureau of Reclamation more concerned with the dam's functionality adorned it with Gothic-inspired balustrade and eagle statues. This initial design was criticized by being many as being too plain and unremarkable for a project of such immense scale. So Los Angeles-based architect Gordon B. Kaufman, then the supervising architecture architect to the Bureau of Reclamation, was brought in to redesign the exteriors. Kaufman greatly streamlined the design and implied an elegant Art Deco style to the entire project. He designed sculpture turrets rising seamlessly from the dam face and clock faces on the intake towers set for the time in Nevada and Arizona. The two states are in different time zones, but as Arizona does not observe daylight savings times, the clocks display the same time for only half the year. At Kaufman's request, Denver artist Alan Tupper True was hired to handle the design and decoration of the walls and floors of the new dam. True's design scheme incorporated motifs of the Navajo and Pueblo tribes of the region. Although some initially were opposed to these designs, True was given the go-ahead and was officially appointed consulting artist. With the assistance of the National Laboratory of Anthropology, True Research Authentic Decorative Motifs from Indian Sand Paintings, Textiles, Baskets, and Ceramics. The images and colors are based on Native American visions of rain, lightning, water, clouds, and local animals, lizards, serpents, birds, and on the southwestern landscape of steeped mesas. In these works, which are integrated into the walkways and interior halls of the dam, True also reflected on the machinery of the operation, making the symbolic patterns appear both ancient and modern. With the agreement of Kaufman and the engineers, True also devised an innovative color coding for pipes and machinery, which was implemented throughout all Bureau of Reclamation projects. True's consulting artist job lasted through 1942, 
It was extended so that he can complete design work for the Parker, Shasta, and Grand Coulee dams and power plants. True's work on the Hoover Dam was humorously referred to in a poem published by The New Yorker, part of which read, Lose the spark and justify the dream, but also worthy of remark will be the color scheme. (laughs) Complimenting Kaufman and True's work, the Norwegian-based naturalized American sculptor Oscar J.W. Hansen designed many of the sculptures on and around the dam. His works include the monuments of Dedication Plaza, a plaque to memorialize the workers killed, and the base reliefs on the elevator towers. In his words, Hansen wanted his work to express the immutable calm of intellectual resolution, an enormous power of trained physical strength, equally enthroned in a placid triumph of the scientific accomplishment. Because the building of Hoover Dam belongs to the sagas of the daring, Hansen's dedication plaza on the Nevada abutment consists of a sculpture of two winged figures flanking a flagpole. Surrounding the base monument is a terrazzo floor embedded with a star map. The map depicts the northern hemisphere sky at the moment of President Roosevelt's dedication of the dam. This is intended to help future astronomers, if necessary, calculate the exact date of the dedication. The 30-foot high bronze figures, dubbed winged figures of the Republic, were each formed in a continuous pour. To put such large bronzes into place without marring the highly polished bronze surface, they were placed on ice and glided onto position as the ice melted. Hansen's base relief on the Nevada elevator tower depicts the benefits of the dam, flood control, navigation, irrigation, water storage, and power. The base relief on the Arizona elevator depicts, in his words, the visages of those Indian tribes who have inhabited mountains and plains from ages distant. During the years of lobbying leading up to the passage of legislation authorizing the dam in 1928, the press generally referred to the dam as Boulder Dam or as Boulder Canyon Dam, even though the proposed site had shifted to Black Canyon. The Boulder Canyon Project Act of 1928 never mentions a proposed name or a title for the dam. The act merely allows the government to construct, operate, and maintain a dam and incidental works in the mainstream of the Colorado River at Black Canyon or Boulder Canyon. When Secretary Wilbur spoke at the ceremony starting the building of the railway between Las Vegas and the dam site on September 17, 1930, he named the dam Hoover Dam, citing a tradition of naming dams after presidents, though none had been so honored during their terms of office. Wilbur justified his choice on the grounds that Hoover was the great engineer whose vision and persistence had done so much to make the dam possible. One writer complained that, in response, that the great engineer had quickly drained, ditched, and dammed the country. After Hoover's election defeat in 1932 and the accession of the Roosevelt administration, 
Secretary Ix ordered on May 13, 1933, that the dam be referred to as Boulder Dam. Ix stated that Wilbur had been imprudent in naming the structure after a sitting president, that Congress had never ratified his choice, and that it had long been referred to as Boulder Dam. When Ix spoke at dedication ceremony on September 30, 1935, he was determined, as he recorded in his diary, to try to nail down for good and all the name Boulder Dam. At one point in his speech, he spoke the words, Boulder Dam, five times within 30 seconds. Further, he suggested that if Dam were to be named after any one person, it should be named for the California Senator, Hiram Johnson, the lead sponsor of the authorizing legislation. Roosevelt himself also referred to the dam as Boulder Dam, and the Republican-leading Los Angeles Times, which at the time of Ick's name change, had run an editorial cartoon showing Ick's ineffectively chipping away at the enormous sign Hoover Dam, reran it showing Roosevelt reinforcing Ick's, but having no greater success. In the following years, the name Boulder Dam failed to fully take hold, with many Americans using the two names interchangeably, and mapmakers divided onto what the name should be printed. Memories of the Great Depression faded, and Hoover, to some extent, rehabilitated himself through good works during and after World War II. In 1947, a bill passed both houses of Congress unanimously restoring the name to Hoover Dam, Ix, who was then a private citizen, opposed the change, saying, I didn't know Hoover was that small of a man to take credit for something he had nothing to do with. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.